The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to uh, launch from tonight. Is the mic hot? Was it loud? Um, before we do that, a couple of quick announcements, or really just mainly one, because there's only one. Um, Biblical theology. This is our uh, our last uh, this is our last teaching in this series, and so we're going to be wrapping that up tonight. Uh, but next week, in the middle of the week, is uh, of course Wednesday, but it's right in the middle of Holy Week, and so we're going to be having our Good Friday service, but we won't be having our regularly scheduled Wednesday night service. So if you are planning on coming out next Wednesday, that has been canceled in favor of having a Good Friday worship service over at the school um, Friday night next week. So make sure you keep track of that. And uh, before we get started here, let's go ahead and pray one more time. And I want you to do this kind of on your own for just a minute. And uh, I'd like for you to just take a second here to put your heart before the Lord and say, God, uh, this is always a chance for me to learn. And, and, and that's great. I, I want to learn. I want to grow. But even more than that, I want to hear your voice. I want you to speak to me. So would you take a moment just to do that? God, you hear the hearts of your people. We are not a knowledge-based religion that only wrestles and wrangles about ideas. We believe, Lord, and have seen that you are a God who is personal and close and desires to interact with us in life. Father, this is what the saints have believed throughout the ages, that you specifically speak, you specifically call, that you train and you disciple and you awaken by the Holy Spirit, that you're deeply and intimately involved in our lives. So as we look into the face of Jesus tonight, would you speak to your people? Would you hear their prayers, God, and respond to them? meet each person this evening. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we've been going through our series here, Biblical Theology, and we're wrapping it up tonight. This is kind of the, the, the final piece here. In week one, Jeff walked us through discipleship and what actually is a disciple. And we, we kind of started at the beginning of the Bible and just tracked forward uh, with the idea that a disciple is a God follower, Right? It's somebody who's following God. And, and, and it doesn't just stop there, but a disciple is, is not only one who follows God, but then is also making others who follow God, teaching others on how to follow God. So a disciple is one who is following the Lord themselves and then is also teaching others to follow God. And, and so we walked through that, through the entire Old Testament on into the New Testament. And then in week two, I went through the kingdom of God. And talked about this reality. Here, let me grab this light here because it's flickering and it's going to be annoying all night. 
in week two, we talked about the kingdom of God, and, and um, we really just kind of tracked through the Bible again, starting at the beginning and moving forward, and discussed this idea that God has been separating out since the very beginning, since the opening pages of scriptures, a people unto himself to fill up the earth with his glory as reflectors of his image and who he is, which brings us to week three, where Sam walked us through the glory of God and talked about how God's glory, his, the impression of who he is, is first of all imprinted upon us, is most clearly seen through Jesus. And he walked us from cover to cover through the scriptures again to talk about that final ta- time where his glory will be revealed in the fullness in the age to come. Where there won't even be a need any longer for the sun, because the glory of God's radiance, the essence of his being, will fill up the whole universe. And we're going to live in that forever. Last week, Jeff walked us through the purpose of biblical theology. He gave us a a couple of little uh, examples of of why it's so important to be able to look at the whole of Scripture, not to get sucked in and, and miss the forest for the trees. We love details. We love word studies. We love looking close. But there is a big message. There's a meta narrative, a wide panoramic story that encompasses all that God intends to do throughout the whole of Scripture. And biblical theology really reveals that to us. And now in week five, we're going to talk about the gospel as it relates to biblical theology. So tonight we'll be discussing how the things that we have discussed throughout these last weeks flow together into one confluence of thought. Now, it's fascinating, at least to me, uh, to think about how the New Testament authors and early believers received the good news about Jesus. The word gospel, I I think most people, if you've been around church for any amount of time, we we know that it means good news, right? Right? But it's interesting that that's not strictly a New Testament or uh, post-Christian era word, right? Uh, This is a word, actually, that was already in use, that was grabbed onto by the disciples, was grabbed onto by early Christians to explain the message of Jesus. It was good tidings, good news. Let me give you a couple of scriptural examples. For instance... Uh, Galatians chapter 3.8 says this, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to who? Check this out. To Abraham, saying that all the nations will be blessed in you. So the gospel message Paul writes to the Galatians was in the Old Testament already. It was already there. And again, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, it says this, For indeed we have had good news preached to us just as to they, the Israelites, also. But the word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. This is alluding to the deliverance from Egypt and the inheritance that the people of Israel would, would receive in the promised land. Therefore, he goes on to say, recognize that when the New Testament, uh, or excuse me, uh, It was not united in faith in what they heard. So therefore, recognize that the New Testament writers use the term gospel or good news 
in specific ways. They're talking about the message, the good news that was preached in the Old Testament to the saints at that time. Um, so it was first used by the prophets. Uh, it often gets translated in the Old Testament, uh, glad tidings or good tidings. Uh, the NASB really picks up on that in, it, uh, in Bible translation. So in other words, the, the gospel message was an idea that predated its usage as it relates to Jesus. The apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus then adopted this idea of a glad tidings, good news, a heralded message to talk about the reality of what Jesus had accomplished. So now think with me about the reality of what the disciples lost for a minute in the death of Jesus. We're going to take a look here in Luke 24 at, at what is happening in their hearts and in their minds, but I want you to think about this reality for a minute. Many of the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. They had left family businesses. They had left their homes. They had faced persecution. Now their names are actually on a like, most wanted list, right? They're like the guys in the deck of cards in Iraq. That's them now. It's their faces on the deck of cards. And, and, and these guys have left so much because they believed with all their hearts that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was the, the promised king from the Old Testament, the one who would become the king of Israel that would finally conquer the Romans, who would finally make Israel the, the, the theocracy it was intended to be with a king at the helm. They genuinely believed that. And when Jesus died, when he died, all the hopes of the disciples died with him. At Golgotha, the followers of Jesus watched as Rome one more time crushed and stamped out any hope, any light that God might fulfill his promises. And all the reasons that they had left home and jobs now seemed meaningless. You see, with no king, there could be no kingdom. The hope for the future was now buried in a tomb. And the disciples are now experiencing loss on two levels. The first one is a loss of hope. Like, there's nothing to look forward to. Everything that I've left behind to follow Jesus is, is now gone. It's now disappeared. It's now decimated. And the second thing that they're experiencing is the loss of their friend. They really did love Jesus. Now, when you think about the death of Jesus, I want you to, I want you to avoid something that is a trap that we kind of all fall into, and that is the trap of thinking of it in terms of only a story or a movie line or, um, you know, some, some kind of entertainment value. Jesus was a person. He was, he was a human. He was, he was like one of you sitting here. And for three and a half years, these men had walked, camped out with, sat around a fire with in the evenings. Jesus. Some of the most incredible experiences of their lives were shared with Jesus, their friend. Like the time that the disciples were there and there was a huge crowd of 5,000 people on the hillside 
And five loaves and two fish were all that was present to feed them. And Jesus lifted it up and blessed it and broke it and handed it out to the disciples. And the disciples just kept handing out bread till 5,000 people were satisfied and there was 12 baskets left over. They were there at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus said, roll back the stone. And everybody was like, oh, man, it's been four days he stinks by now. Let's, I don't think this is a great idea, but they roll it back anyway, and Jesus shouts out, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead guy who had been dead for four days stands up and walks out of the tomb. Can you imagine being there in that moment? These disciples have shared the deepest, most profound experiences of their entire lives with Jesus. I want you to take a moment right now. Think of somebody close to you, a best friend, somebody that you shared the deepest experiences of your life with. Maybe it's a family member, a spouse. And maybe you can already feel the sting of loss because they are no longer present in your life. Or, or can you imagine what it would be like to not have them present in your life? And not only that, but to have them brutally murdered in front of you, before your very eyes, tortured and displayed like some sort of ritual killing in front of everybody else. Can you imagine going to your friend who is nailed to a chunk of wood, having to get him down from the wood and pry his lifeless arms from the nails? Can you, can you put yourself in that kind of trauma? That kind of darkness, that kind of loss. Can you feel the reality of what the disciples are feeling in this moment? Consider what finality this brought to the disciples and those that follow Jesus. You see, for us, as we think about death, death brings this inescapable conclusion Whatever plans we had are gone. Whatever hopes we had for the relationship are dashed into pieces. Whatever was left unsaid will be forever, uh, un, will be forever left undone. Death is final. It's the period at the end of a life. And that is what the disciples are sitting with. Hope for the future, gone their lives in peril, and their very best friend was murdered in their eyes. They laid his body in a tomb. This explains the actions of the disciples. The, Roman had crushed, the Romans had crushed their hopes. Now the leaders of Israel could easily dissuade anyone from following the disciples in their messianic movement. The disciples who had left everything to follow Jesus are now left empty. Some of their families had put their entire lives on the line. Not only that, but these guys were struggling with this internal battle of the death of their friend. And, and, and we find two of them now, after the resurrection, after the death, making their way from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. Verse 13 of chapter 24 in the book of Luke. 
That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened because, you see, women had come with a report from the tomb that the tomb was empty. And they're like, well, what, what does that mean? What's going on? Maybe somebody stole his body. Maybe it was the Romans. Maybe it was the Pharisees because they were concerned about you know, all kinds of things. They're, they're, they're processing. Here's what's not on their radar. What's not on their radar is that Jesus is actually alive. They're just not quite sure what to think about the disappearance of his body. So they're talking about what had happened. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I love this. He rolls up, maybe in a ghillie suit, some sort of camo. I'm, I'm not sure what's happening, but they're, they're talking. And he just kind of strolls up behind them. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Right? They, they have no idea that it's him. Maybe his face was covered. We're, we're, not, we're not sure. Their eyes were kept from being able to recognize him. Verse 16. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Notice the state of their hearts. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, are, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, eh, what things? Don't you love Jesus? I mean, don't you just love what's going on? He's like, yeah, I, I, was, I was pretty close to those events, <laughs> right? But he's like, huh, what things are those? Go ahead and tell me about it. He's trying to draw something out of them. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amaze us when they... They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Think about this moment. As they're walking, Jesus begins to unpack the scriptures for them. And he starts all the way back at the beginning with the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And he begins to work his way all the way through to the prophets. 
just like we've been doing in these last weeks. And he begins to unpack for them everything concerning himself. He begins to walk them through the reality of what his life, his death, and his resurrection actually mean. These disciples are amazed as they draw, verse 28, near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for, for it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them, and when he was at a table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. <laughs> it's a spectacular moment. You see, here was what was wrong with the disciples' view of God's plan up to this point. It was only one-dimensional. It was only one-dimensional. It it, it's the difference for you and for I to draw an analogy between, between hearing in mono or hearing in stereo. Now, the way that mono and stereo works is, is really kind of simple. You have one audio source, the mono audio, you see the first speaker up top. That source, that single source, is fed equally into the right and left uh, ear, right? Or right and left speaker, if you will. And so that one source produces one sound. And with that, you can adjust the volume. You can make it louder or softer, but, but the... The sound that is coming out is only from one source. And so the only adjustment is, is where the speaker is with the, the little sound waves coming out. That's the only adjustment that you can make. As a result of that, sound is all sort of even or flat. Not much variation. The, the sound quality is, goes down. But then comes stereo. Stereo comes along, and, and that changes things. Matter of fact, uh, there, there was this time in history when we could only record in monophonic or monaural sound. This meant that recorded sounds could only be played from one source equally in both ears. And all the changes could only happen in that one place. But then came sound in stereo, and with stereo sound, you could divide the sounds from multiple sources into individual ears. And by making sound binaural, you could create three-dimensional space in the, in the mind of the hearer. Because in our day-to-day -day life, with two ears, we're able to sort of locate objects, think about depth, and consider how far an object is away from you. And all of a sudden, when you put headphones on and it's stereo, you can actually tell where a musician is on stage. You can hear footprints walking from one side of your head all the way to the other. You can experience sound in three dimensions. Your, your brain fills in all the details of that. And see, here's the problem with the disciples. They were only hearing the voice of the prophets in one dimension. They were, they were hearing in a limited way. When stereo sound came on the scene, all of a sudden, music and movies and everything came to life in a radical way. Because it, when you're at the movies, you could actually be in the front seat of a car, hearing things as they go by, hearing conversation out of one side of the TV. You could experience what it's like to actually be there. 
Or you could put on headphones and listen to music and hear your favorite band. And it was like you've had the best seats in the house. Right in front of the stage. You hear the drums off to the right. And the lead guitar off to the left. And all of a sudden you're put in the experience of what is happening. And the moment that Jesus begins to explain from the whole of Scripture all that was written concerning himself in the Law and Prophets, the Scriptures began to come alive in a fresh way to these disciples. You see, the disciples had a grasp on the prophecies that concerned the Messiah. They knew, they knew that God was raising up a king like David. But they did not see all the ways in which Everything that was written in the Old Testament would be fulfilled in Jesus. They, they, they were missing pieces of it. They were only hearing and seeing in one dimension. They saw the gospel in principle as a message of God's future king and his future rule. But they did not see the hundreds of ways in which God would picture the redemption that he would work through his king. So let's imagine for a moment what it was like for the understanding of the disciples to catch up to what Jesus was telling them. We're going to look at four things here. Um, as we consider this, the message of the gospel that Jesus taught to the disciples from the perspective of biblical theology. The disciples, first of all, they knew the gospel in principle, that is, that there was a coming king. They knew, they knew the basics of the gospel, the message of who he is. But they, they had lost many of the details, many of the, the portions of scripture that gave specifics about Jesus' life didn't become clear to them immediately when it was happening, but after the fact. And so Jesus, when he comes along then with the disciples here on the road and when he taught them for the 50 days after the resurrection didn't just show them the gospel in principle, but he showed them the gospel in picture. And they began to understand that the gospel is a person. The gospel is fulfilled in a person. And then it began to dawn on them that the gospel was to be lived out in practice among them. So the gospel in principle as a prophetic claim that God would redeem Israel. The gospel in picture as themes of the gospel repeat themselves in, in a sort of circular pattern going around and around and around all throughout the Old Testament. And the gospel in person as they realized that the entire Old Testament was God's story of how he would save and redeem mankind. And finally, the gospel in practice as they began to understand what it is that God had planned through his son. Then all of a sudden their mission their lives, their actions, their hearts, all of that becomes so clear when they get what it is that God desires for them and from them. So let's start with what they knew already. They knew what every good Israelite knew. They knew the prophecies of the Old Testament that relate to the conquering king figure, the mess messianic king called the anointed one or the Mashiach. Mashiach, Messiah, means anointed. That's where that term comes from. In the Greek, it's Christos, right? The anointed one, the one who's christened. And what the disciples have is this understanding of this anointed one from God and, and this Messiah in, in only a singular dimension. 
And, and, and they're beginning to understand something that's so much richer, so much better than they could have conceived. Uh, according to Alfred Eidersheim, he's a, a, a biblical scholar who lived in the 1800s, there are 352 Old Testament passages that were interpreted as having a messianic fulfillment in rabbinical writings. In other words, people that were not Christians, that were rabbis, they were Jews, Israelites, as they studied the Old Testament, the scriptures, the Keturah, the Ketuvim, the Pentateuch, as they studied all of the scriptures together, they came up with 352 passages apart from an understanding of Jesus. 352 passages that related to the Messiah. And if you want to pick up Alfred Eidersheim's book, you can look in the back. He's got all of those passages listed for you. But, but I want to focus on just a few. Something that every good Israelite understood about the Messiah. Some things that every good Israelite understood. So we're talking about the gospel in principle here. So let's remind ourselves of the principle of the gospel, the coming king, the messianic king that God had promised would come. How that was presented through the prophecies of the Old Testament. So the gospel in principle. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We all kind of know that one, I think, by, by heart now. Uh, it, it, it promised that God would send a Messiah who would be of the seed of woman, which is a really unique phrase because uh, women don't have seed, if you will. The idea is that it's pointing towards the virgin birth and that the, the, the coming king would be the product of a woman only, not having known a man, it would be that he would be virgin born. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that the Messiah would be a de descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 8, that the Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac and then again a descendant of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 to 14. And then again in Genesis chapter 49, further crafting where the Messiah would come from. It said that he would be from the tribe of Judah because the scepter, the right to rule, would not depart from Judah for all of eternity. Then it goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 18, saying that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses who would lead his people. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, Messiah would be a descendant of David and that his kingdom would be eternal. Malachi told us towards the end of the Old Testament that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner. And in Zechariah, we're told that the Messiah would be presented to his people while riding on a donkey. That's coming up this Sunday time of celebrating that. So every good Israelite knew these scriptures. They, they, they were raised with this understanding. They, they, they knew these concepts. However, the disciples did what we often do. They edited what was revealed in the scriptures according to their preferences. Now, everybody wants to say, no, I, I don't do that. I don't do that. Okay, I challenge you to do this. Go through your Bible and look at all the verses that you've underlined. How many of them have to do with curses? How many of them have to do with blessings? 
We underline all the blessings, right? We look at the scriptures, we go, oh yeah, I love that one. That's for me, right? Then when it comes to the curses, we're like, "Mm, that's for somebody else. (laughs) The disciples did the same thing, right? They looked over the whole of all that God had revealed, and they they, they picked what they wanted, what they preferred. That's what stood out to them. That's what encouraged them. That's what stoked the fires of their hearts. As a result, they missed out on all the other equally powerful passages that were messianic in the Old Testament. So watch what happens when we add stereophonic sound from the Old Testament. So they got Messiah coming from the seed of a woman, descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, a king like David, a prophet like Moses, presented on a donkey in the same way that kings in a time of peace are presented. A forerunner is going to come before him and announce his arrival. They got all that, right? They have that full picture. Let's add in some other scriptures. How about Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that Messiah would be conspired against by the rulers of Israel. Or Psalm 118, that the Messiah would be rejected even though he's the cornerstone of the house. Or Isaiah 8, where it says that the Messiah will make the deaf hear and the, yeah, the deaf hear and the blind see. Or Psalm 72, where it says that Messiah will care for the poor and needy. Isaiah 49, where it says that he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth and make Israel a light to the Gentiles. Or Zechariah, where it says that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Or Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where it says that he would make a new covenant and do away with the covenant in tablets of stone and write a new covenant on the tablets of people's hearts. Or Ezekiel, or excuse me, or Psalm 22, where it says that the Messiah would be crucified and that he would thirst during his execution with his hands and his feet pierced. Psalm 27, where it says that he would be falsely accused by lying witnesses. Or Michael 5, where it says that he would be struck on the head with a rod. Or Isaiah 50, where it says that his beard would be pulled out and he would be beaten and spat upon. Psalm 31, that he would commit his spirit into the hands of the Father. Isaiah 53, where he would be rejected and close his mouth and not defend himself and be dumb like a sheep before his shearers. And that he would be put to death for the sins of his people and that his sacrifice would be pleasing unto the Father. Or how about Isaiah 53, 9, where it says that the Messiah would be buried with the rich Or Psalm 16, where it says that Messiah would be raised from the dead. Psalm 68, verse 18, where it says that Messiah would ascend on high. Or Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where it says that the Messiah would return again to gather Israel and that they will see that he still bears the scars of nails in his hands. And they will look upon him whom they pierced and say, where did you get those wounds? And he'll respond by saying, in the house of my friends. Doesn't that change your view of the Messiah? He's not just a conquering king. He's suffering. He's rejected. He's crucified. He's buried. He's coming again. He's resurrected. 
You see, all of a sudden, as Jesus is walking with these guys on the way to Emmaus, he's walking down and he's just tracking through the story of the Bible, just unloading the scriptures on them. And all of a sudden, it goes from monaural sound to binaural sound. All of a sudden, everything goes stereophonic. And they can feel their hearts coming. Wait a minute. This has always been God's plan? This is what he wanted? (laughs) They could see then the gospel in principle in clarity revealed through the scriptures. Because the scriptures perfectly predicted the things that would happen in Jesus' life. And there's over 350 references to events in the life of the Messiah. Isn't that incredible? Now think about this. Think about this book. This book right here that we hold in our hands. Think about the reality of this. It, 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 we got, you know, some 40, over 40 different uh, authors here. You, you, it's written over thousands of years. It, it's written by by people in different time eras, in different locations, different languages. Sometimes they're in exile in, in, in Babylon, right? Sometimes they're, they're under siege in Israel. It, it, it's the history. It's poetry all mixed together with narrative. It, it's, it, it, it's weird and, and crazy because there's these prophets that are doing weird stuff like laying on their side for a certain number of days or making poop cakes. That, that was a fun job as a, as a prophet. Ezekiel got that job. Hey, Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do. Make some cakes with poop eat it in front of my people, and tell them, that's what I think of you, <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's weird, right? But you take all of those things together, and you start to see this picture emerge that no matter the author, no matter the language, no matter the place, no matter the time, God is speaking one message what he plans to do. He said it in words, explicitly, in principle. But he also gave it to us again and again in pictures, didn't he? We have the gospel not only in principle, but the gospel in pictures. Think through all of the types of what Christ would accomplish. We have two sort of categories, if you will. Cycles of redemptive words. And then cycles of redemptive pictures. So cycle of redemptive words are, are, are this, this idea that, that God, through preaching, is continuing to redeem his people. So Genesis chapter 1, for example, opens up. And God is preaching things into existence. The words of God are creating life. And, and he's demonstrating that's that's always been my plan, that my words would bring life. That's always been my plan. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, when sin makes an entrance, what does God do? He preaches a good word. Good news. You're not always going to be stuck in this. I'm sending my deliverer. He's going to come and deliver you. 
When sin dominates and the whole world is enslaved by sin to where there's only one righteous family left, what does God do? He proclaims through words to Noah, this is the way of salvation, follow me. Noah responds and is saved. When the world is overrun by idolatrous rebellion and the days of the Tower of Babel and thereafter, and the world is divided and splintered as a judgment from God. What does God do? He takes one of those splinters. He separates it out unto himself in Genesis chapters 10 through 12. And God does what? He preaches a message to that person, Abraham, who was separated out for his purpose. And he says, if you will come and follow me, I'll make you a blessing to the world. By the time we get to Exodus, when God's people are enslaved, God miraculously saves. How? Through the preaching of Moses. Pharaoh, let my people go. Children of Israel, put the blood on your doorpost. Trust God, he will deliver you. When we get to Deuteronomy and Moses is finally dying, And God's people are faithless. What does God do? He sends a leader named Joshua. What does he do? He encourages the people with words of faith. These giants are nothing. He calls them forward into obedience. God has given us the land. God strengthens him with words. And the very first battle that that they're involved in in the promised land, was it won by fighting? but by a response to the good word of God. They're trusting in him, saying that he would deliver, and all of a sudden the walls of Jericho come tumbling down simply because they believed the good word. When we get to Judges, when God's people struggle in obedience, God raises up judges that proclaim his heart and fight for their freedom. In 1 Samuel and all the way through the historical books, when God's people struggle to live under God's rule, God raises up kings that proclaim the truth and continue just to keep calling Israel back to obedience. And there's a lot of bad kings in there, but God keeps raising up good kings to say, this is the right way. Come back. And when the kings utterly fail, God raises up prophets. And the rest of the Old Testament story is the writings of the prophets that are doing what? Proclaiming God's words. Preaching to Israel. Come and be saved. Obey. Follow God. And he will deliver you. And so you see this cycle Again and again, that God through preaching and proclamation is saving his people. So you see the cycle of redemptive words, but not only that, but the cycle of redemptive pictures. Uh, Let's just go through this very quickly. Jesus is the better than. Hebrews makes this so so clear. If you want to do a fantastic Bible study sometime, one that will absolutely blow your mind, grab the book of Hebrews and a couple of good commentaries and walk your way through that. It will absolutely blow you away. 
Why? Well, because Jesus is the better than Adam. Where Adam failed and brought death into the world, Jesus succeeded and brought life. He's the better lamb slain to cover our nakedness and sin. He's righteous Abel who was slain by who? Slain by us, his brothers in humanity. He's the better Noah who bore our judgment and saved all who would believe in him. He's the better ark rescuing all those called by grace. He's the better Abraham who started a righteous nation for his father. He's the better Isaac offered on the altar. He's a better Joseph rejected by his brothers in order that he might save them. He's the better Moses delivering God's people from slavery to sin. He's the better tabernacle in which we meet with God. He is the better priest who intercedes forever and ever lives to make intercession for us. He's a better sacrifice to gain forgiveness. He's a better Sabbath rest that is eternal and causes God's people to cease from trying to please him by their labor. He's a better lawgiver because he writes them not on tablets of stone, but upon the tables of our hearts. He's a better Aaron, leading a better priesthood, the priesthood of all believers, him charging the way as we represent God here on earth. He's a better Joshua, leading us into all that God has promised. He's a better Samson, fighting to free us and offering his life in exchange for ours. He's a better David, facing Goliath and facing the Goliath of hell and sin and death. He triumphantly, victoriously trounces him. He's a better David, ruling righteously over his people. He's a better Solomon, ruling his people with love and holiness rather than sin and selfishness. He's a better prophet, bringing us a better word and a better understanding of the heart of God because it's not just in words, but it's in a person being lived out. Seeing this, is what the disciples are being exposed to. Think about this moment. Here they are. They're walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is unpacking for them everything that's included in the Scriptures. And as that happens, he's showing them where it's explicitly stated. They're beginning to see the pictures on all the times that God has preached and proclaimed the way of salvation. They're beginning to understand all the ways in which God has, shows, has showed that he is a savior to his people. They realize, oh, Jesus is better. Listen, the gospel is not just words. It's not just pictures. But they start to understand that the gospel is a person. The good news is about a person who actually accomplished something on our behalf. We're not talking like belief system or, you know, um, you know, some philosophical ethic that we ascribe to. We're talking about a person who physically, spiritually absorbed all of our sin. Upon the cross. There he died with it as a sacrifice on our behalf. And now has been raised from the dead. And it's beginning to become clear that the good news is not just about a message. Not just about principles to believe in. Not just about pictures of what God will do. 
but it's about a person through whom he will do it. This is why Jesus said, I, I got to turn here. It's so good. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus is unpacking the law in a different, on a different occasion. And, uh, and he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing it? Are you seeing how it is that Jesus is accomplishing everything that the Old Testament was picturing, everything that it was talking about, everything that God has promised? It's happening through Jesus. He says, For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all, ready for this word? Accomplished. Here's what Jesus is saying. Everything that was happening in the Old Testament was to point you to me. It is a being accomplished. All that God promised, all that God pictured is being accomplished, being fulfilled through a person, and it's me. <laughs> That's powerful stuff. Think about that reality. Now, the disciples at this moment then have, you know, fireworks going off in their brains. It's like they're making connections. And as, as this is happening, the scriptures tell us what we read here. It says, when he was with us, did not our hearts burn within us, right? Like they, they're getting excited about this. But at some point, the gospel has to turn a corner. And it's not just about celebrating what God has done and is doing and, and who he has sent. And, and not just about that, but God through the gospel is accomplishing something in his disciples. And the rest of the New Testament then begins to unpack this for us. All of the, the gospels, the book of Acts, the epistles, and the book of Revelation are the unfolding of how the gospel gets lived out in practice. The gospel is not only a principle. It's not only pictured. It's not only a person, but it's lived out now in practice in the life of a believer. So how do we do that? I mean, that's ultimately the question that the disciples have to ask, right? How, did, how does this happen? What, how does the gospel impact daily life? How do we carry the gospel? There's really two ways, in principle and in picture. The same way that Jesus did. In principle, we talk about the claims that God has made. We tell the message of Jesus. Because apart from that message, people cannot be saved. They need to understand who Jesus is and worship God as a consequence of that. So we, we bring the same principle that Jesus brought to the disciples, that God has always been working towards redemption in this way. But not only that, but we carry the gospel in picture as well. That is, the way that we live expresses 
all that God was seeking to accomplish through the gospel. Our words and our actions demonstrate the reality of God's rule here on earth. Now, the fact that the resurrection did something in the hearts of the disciples, their reasoning must have gone something like this. Okay, so if this is true, if Jesus really is the fulfillment of everything that God has been promising, if he's been raised from the dead by the, by the power of God, if he really is the son of God and he's, and he's going to ascend and sit upon a throne and one day he's coming again and the kingdom will be established, if all of that is true, then this changes everything. And one by one, all the hopes that they had, that had been dashed to pieces on Good Friday, begin to come alive again on Resurrection Sunday, on the road to Emmaus. It meant for them that all that they had given up to follow Jesus was now worth it. It meant for them that everything that he had taught them wasn't just good advice. It was the word of God. It meant that their lives had a great purpose, not just occupying space. It meant that the relationship between God and man just became more intimate and that God could be known personally. It meant that the God of the Old Testament really was a God of love. It meant that God loves those who don't know him personally. It meant that heaven is real and hell is real and all that God plans to do. It meant that God was calling the world to repent and receive forgiveness for their sins by allowing Jesus to take the punishment on the cross as a substitute for them. It meant that God had now made himself available through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. It meant that prayers do get heard, the sick do get healed, the lame do walk, the blind do see, the dead are raised. It meant that he is ruling and reigning on a throne in heaven and that he's coming back to take up his throne on the earth. It meant that the king who died on Friday was alive forevermore. It meant that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we genuinely, honestly, truly, actually, in reality, will all live happily ever after. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the most fantastic news you've ever heard? Listen, as we look back over our trip through biblical theology, we, all we have to do is kind of unwind this backwards and look. We started out, or we ended last week thinking about why biblical theology is important. It gives us the whole view of God's word and what he plans to do. Prior to that, all that God has planned to do is for one purpose. It's to the glory of, good, the glory of God like Sam taught us. And how is he doing that? How is he glorifying himself by creating a kingdom like we talked about in the second week? And in that kingdom, it's filled with disciples who are making disciples, followers of God who submit to his authority and rule. And how do they do that? Through the good news of the message that God saves, has saved, is saving, will save. 
has redeemed, is redeeming, and will redeem a people unto himself. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder. Lord, we need to see this again and again. We are caught up in something so much bigger than our our comfort, so much bigger than our puny little lives here on earth. God, we are a part of something that is eternal, something that predates even the foundations of the earth, something you thought of before you ever spoke the world into existence. And from Genesis to Revelation, we find our place in your story. We find our hope in your redemption. We find our peace in your presence. We find forgiveness at your cross. We find power through your spirit. All that we need, all that we desire, all that we long for is found in you. So as disciples in your kingdom, may we speak and practice all that the gospel means for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful night. We'll see you in two weeks.